Welcome to the June 2014 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Bailey Dalgan. This month, how young blood could improve cognitive function in the elderly. As long as the plasma gets into the bloodstream, it has an effect. And the effect that we saw was, you know, enhancements in learning and memory. The promise of exome sequencing to personalize cancer care. Relating that gene to a specific drug that was in clinical trials, we are able to put the two together and get the patient on a clinical trial based off of his genomic profile. Plus, a unique gene signature in a deadly pancreatic cancer, a model of Barth syndrome on a chip, and a new strategy for tumor immunotherapy. But first, the rejuvenating power of young blood. Here's a ghoulish-sounding experiment. Take a pair of mice, one old, the other young, stitch together their circulatory systems, and what you'll see is that the old mice seem particularly youthful, while the young mice will have aged prematurely. It sounds like the stuff of vampire movies, but this experiment has important implications for the field of anti-aging. You see, scientists have known for some years that stem cells have something to do with these kinds of parabiosis experiments, but stem cells don't tell the whole story. In a trio of new papers, one in Nature Medicine and two in Science, research teams in California and in Massachusetts have now demonstrated that there are molecules actually in the plasma of young blood that can spur the growth of new blood vessels, new neurons, and new synaptic connections in the brains of the aged. There are factors that are in the systemic circulation in the blood that are responsible for keeping animals' brains and the processes that underlie memory and learning young. That's Stephen Paul, founding director of the Appel Alzheimer's Disease Research Institute at the Weill Cornell Medical College in New York. In the June issue of Nature Medicine, he penned a News & Views commentary article about the new research studies. I think it's a very exciting, uh, relatively unexplored still area of research that could yield down the road new potential medicines that could be helpful in keeping our brains young and vigorous and keeping uh, our memory processes intact as we age. To learn more about the research, I spoke with the first author of the Nature Medicine paper, Saul Valeda. He did part of the work as a postdoc at Stanford University before starting his own lab at UCSF. So we, we took blood from three-month-old mice, we removed the cells, just kept the plasma, and then we did these experiments at, at, both at Stanford as well as at UCSF. At Stanford, we administered it intravenously, and at UCSF, we administered it intraorbitally. The bottom line is, it didn't matter how we put it in, as long as the plasma gets into the bloodstream, it had an effect. And the effect that we saw was, you know, enhancements in learning and memory. I don't want to sound disparaging, but in some ways it's, like so obvious what you've done where you just take young blood, put it in an older mouse and, and you see benefits. How is it that no one had seen these results before? Yeah, isn't, isn't it amazing that this really is a, a very um, simple concept. And I think if, even if we look at folklore or if we look at different cultures across history, they sort of looked at blood in this special way 
gotten so many references to you know vampires um, just from the media. But you know, underlying is this idea that there's something in young blood. I think what we did is, um, and really initiated you know over a decade ago by groups like Tom Rando or Rena Convoy, is they, they took this uh, sort of simple concept, this concept I think we all have had or heard about, and applied the scientific method to it. We actually were able to take this idea and then ask a hypothesis and then test it. And, you know, we've tested it now with cutting-edge technology. You know, we ran uh, transcriptional analysis. We're able to use these awesome viral tools to prevent activation of different molecules. I think that's what the advance is, is that we now can actually have control groups and experimental groups and say, this is what we observed, and this was the control, and this is how we think we're going to find out how it's working. Well, what is it about the young blood that is causing this? Is there some rejuvenating factor that helps the aged brain? Yeah, I think this is really where, um, you know, the, the studies by, by Amy Wagers and, and the, the Harvard uh, researchers, they were able to identify one factor, GDF11. I think the consensus is that it's going to be a combination of factors. I think each individual factor will have some rejuvenating effect. But something like cognition, which is so multifaceted, will involve, you know, stem cells. It will involve synapses, it will involve electrophysiological changes, and I think to elicit all those, it'll probably be a combination. Um, what we showed in 2011, and again, they had this, the same exact observations in a different part of the brain in the science study, was that you know, old blood is also bad. You know, old blood it decreases stem cells, and we showed that it also inhibits cognition. So I think of it as two different strategies, and they're not mutually exclusive in terms of sort of rejuvenating uh, aging effects. And the first one is that maybe we need to abrogate or decrease some of these pro-aging factors that are increasing with aging. And another approach would be to introduce pro-youthful factors from the young blood. And maybe in humans, you know, we're such complex organisms that perhaps in humans we may need a combination of both. Well, a good time to be starting your own lab, and you've got lots of work ahead of you, I guess. It's fantastic, yes. The, the graduate students and the postdocs are so excited to be, you know, really doing this anti-aging, this rejuvenation um, research. You know, we're really trying to find cellular and molecular biology mechanisms to a really, really crazy concept like uh, rejuvenation. And dare I guess that your lab Halloween party is going to be vampire-themed? <laughs> We've been thinking about what to do for our lab t-shirts. Solvaleda, coming up. Cancer, cancer, and more cancer. But first, studying heart disease on a chip. Modeling diseases in a dish with the help of induced pluripotent stem cells is becoming routine. And creating miniature organs on a chip is almost old hat. But put the two technologies together, and you have something new. Indeed, reporting in Nature Medicine, for the first time researchers have created functioning human heart tissue that carries an inherited cardiovascular disease. The disease in this case is called Barth syndrome. And the researchers are Bill Poo from Children's Hospital Boston and Kevin Kit Parker from Harvard University. To discuss the potential of this research platform, I met up with both investigators on the Harvard campus in Cambridge, Massachusetts. In this excerpt from our conversation, you'll hear Bill Poo's voice first. Barth syndrome is a myopathy that involves the skeletal muscle and the heart muscle. What was known about it uh, when we started the study was that it's caused by a mutation of a gene called tefazin, uh, which is a protein that uh, makes the lipids in the inner mitochondrial membrane. But it wasn't really understood how this mitochondrial protein mutation um, causes a myopathy. So to better understand what's going on in the disease, you turn to induced pluripotent stem cells, effectively where you, you take 
a skin biopsy, say, from someone who has Barth syndrome, and you can convert them into these pluripotent stem cells that you can then turn into the heart muscle cells. When you did that, what did you see in those cells in the dish? So what we noticed is uh, when we made the myocytes derived from the uh, pluripotent stem cells is that they did not seem to beat uh, very effectively, um, but we didn't really have a good way to measure their beating strength, and that's why we turned to work with uh, Kip Parker's bioengineering group. Okay, let's turn to you then. It's a good segue. So you've got the iPS cell-derived cells, but they're just sort of single cells in a dish, and you wanted to develop a more complicated system. Can you tell us about the, the hard-on-a-chip technology that you developed? Yeah, one of the things we're trying to do is develop a more simple system. I, I can't understand the heart. <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to break it down to some simple terms I can understand. So we've been working in my group for a few years on trying to develop tools to understand the heart and other muscular organs. And, you know, when you build tools the way we do, you want to build a tool so that um, whoever uses my organ chip is not fighting the chip. They're not fighting the cells. They're fighting the disease. So we had optimized the chip design over several years using rodent cells and tried to use human cells, but not really with a good cell type. We were still fighting the cell. Bill cells right away were a winner. I mean, we put them down there and we realized, hey, we're not fighting the chip anymore. We're not fighting the cell. We're just fighting the disease. And in terms of this disease, what could you see on your chip that yeah. wasn't apparent just looking at the iPS cell derived cells on their own in the dish? Yeah, so when we put these cells down on, built the tissues out of them, we realized right away that they didn't build themselves in the same way that healthy cells did. And then when we started measuring their contractility, we saw that they, they didn't contract as much. They weren't as strong a muscle. And, and the relationship between the inability to appropriately build their structure and to function uh, was clear. So what is it about the mitochondria that is going wrong effectively in Barth syndrome? So we think that, that it's not due to a lack of energy production that these cells are not contracting properly. We think that at least one key factor is that they're actually uh, doing something wrong, which is that they're producing excessive reactive oxygen species and that those are uh, damaging the cell. We think it's also likely that the mitochondria are providing other signals that uh, help the myocyte to mature properly and to assemble its uh, contractile units and that those other functions are disrupted in this disease. You both actually came up with a number, or at least two interesting therapeutic leads, either gene therapy or perhaps a, a, a druggable route. Can you tell me about those discoveries and, and how they might lead to uh, potential therapies for Barth syndrome? Right, so what we were able to show is, first of all, uh, we could correct the weak muscle contraction in two ways. One is, is uh, if we put the gene back into the cells, we could reverse the disease process and uh, allow them to contract normally. And the second is uh, that if we suppressed the production of excessive uh, reactive oxygen species, uh, which we call ROS, uh, by the cells, we could also uh, rescue their contractile function. So the hope is that if we uh, did either of those uh, approaches in, in patients, that we would be able to uh, improve their heart muscle function. So is the next step then to screen for molecules that can block these reactive oxygen species using your, your chip? Yeah, that's the intent for all the organs on chips, is to develop high-throughput screening models where big pharma or the biotech industry or even an independent investigator um, 
can use these tools to quickly run through drugs, basically do a clinical trial on a chip where I can take a patient's cells, replicate their disease on this chip, and I can throw a whole bunch of different things at there and see what, see what sticks. It's not the most elegant way of doing science, um, but that's frankly the, the model for drug discovery. Uh, the point of what we're doing with the organs and chips is we want these cells to feel like they're in a heart. We want them to feel like, hey, I'm in a heart and I'm doing what, what I do in the heart. And that way when the drug or, 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 or any type of genetic intervention is, is done, it feels like they're in their native environment. Kit Parker and Bill Poo. Their study can be found in the June issue of Nature Medicine. Cancer cells are sneaky immune evaders. One way they avoid immune attack is through the induction of a population of cells called myeloid-derived suppressor cells. These cells, which come from the bone marrow, stifle the body's normal immune responses against tumors. Myeloid-derived suppressor cells have proven particularly difficult to eliminate therapeutically, but now, in a report in this month's Nature Medicine, Larry Kwok and his colleagues at the MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston may have finally discovered these cells' Achilles' heel. What our work has done now is, for the first time, identified a marker on the surface of these cells that we can use to target and identify the cells and eliminate them specifically without eliminating uh, other good immune cells that are in the tumor. What is that marker? It's, it's actually a protein uh, called an alarmin, and it's given that name because it's a cell that's in many cases secreted by these types of cells uh, to trigger an immune response. And it turns out that this protein uh, is found on the surface of myeloid-derived suppressor cells. And you're binding to and identifying these surface markers with something called a peptibody. It's, it's not a peptide. It's not an antibody. What is that? Yes. So it's a peptide therapeutic. Uh, it's very similar to a monoclonal antibody. It, it's a peptide in which the constant region of an antibody has been genetically engineered. So it functions somewhat like an antibody and it binds specifically to the target on the surface of, the, of this bad cell and then eliminates it. When you gave this peptibody to mice, how well did it work at actually shrinking tumors? Well, it confirmed our hypothesis, which was that if we could eliminate these uh, bad cells, that would unleash the immune system and allow the immune system to eradicate the tumors. And that's, in fact, what we observed, uh, was that there was a dramatic slowing of the growth of the tumor in the mice that were given this therapeutic peptide um, as opposed to control mice. And so it's really a very potent effect that, that we observed. With all the normal caveats that, of course, the proof is in the pudding and it needs to get tested in clinical trials, but based on, on what you know of the biology of these cells, of the mechanics of these peptibodies, and the data that you've, you're presenting here from the mice, how hopeful are you that this kind of approach will work in people and, and be eventually a, a therapeutic? Yes. Well, that's actually the most, uh, most exciting part of the work is that subsequently what we've been able to show is in, uh, at least in a preliminary analysis, this same marker appears to be on human myeloid-derived suppressor cells also. Uh, so the same marker presumably could be targeted with 
either a peptide therapeutic or a monoclonal antibody, if we can confirm this, then it means that the application to human clinical trials should be very rapid, and uh, this would be a, a, a new therapeutic that would be available for cancer therapy. You tested this approach in multiple tumor models in mice. Yes. Was there a difference? Did it matter if it was a solid tumor, a blood tumor? Yes, yeah, so that's an excellent point. Uh, what's particularly exciting about this new therapeutic is that myeloid-derived suppressor cells are found in all types of human cancers. And uh, the, if the marker is the same, which we uh, believe it is, then the same agent could be used to treat multiple different types of, of cancers. Larry Kwok. Also in the June issue of Nature Medicine, we have a report of the first known unique molecular signature of pancreatic adenosquamous carcinoma, a particularly aggressive form of pancreatic cancer that has a worse prognosis and a higher metastatic potential than its more common adenocarcinoma counterpart. The mutation in question is found in a gene called UPF1. UPF1 encodes the core component of the NMD, or nonsense-mediated decay pathway. This is a surveillance mechanism that ensures genes are expressed correctly. So when UPF1 is mutated, a lot of things go wrong in the cell because of the loss of NMD. And through a cascade of downstream effects, this ultimately leads to the deadly subtype of pancreatic cancer. Miles Wilkinson is an NMD expert at the University of California, San Diego, and one of the study's senior authors. In the past, there's not been any known unique mutations that are associated with this particular kind of pancreatic cancer, and, and I guess that's the novelty of our work and that we've discovered what we think is the first molecular signature mutations found in this type of pancreatic cancer. And although adenosquamous carcinoma is relatively rare, um, it's a particularly devastating disease. It's more aggressive than the standard form of pancreatic cancers. And now that you've linked this mutation to this cancer, how do you see the utility? Is it in diagnostics? Do you now have a biomarker? Or, or is this actually a, a drug target? With pancreatic cancer, the key problem is that diagnosis is almost always far too late. By the time it's diagnosed, it's already metastasized, it's highly invasive. And so the key is early diagnosis. And so with regard to our finding, I think the key would be is if UPF1 mutation was an early event, the generation of this kind of tumor, what would happen is the tumor would then have low NMD as a result of loss of UPF1 or actually complete loss of NMD probably. And this would then allow RNAs that are normally degraded by NMD to go up in levels. Amongst those RNAs may be RNAs encoding proteins that are secreted. And that would be key because then one could measure the levels of those secreted proteins in the blood, which is obviously much more accessible than the pancreas itself, which would require a biopsy. But if one could do, you know, once every five years testing in the blood for secreted proteins that are downstream of NMD, this could be, I think, a viable assay. Miles Wilkinson. You can read more about his study on our website, nature.com slash nature medicine. We end this month now with one last story about cancer. Now, before you complain of cancer fatigue and churn off the podcast, let me assure you this last report is nothing like the first two. 
Whereas the findings in the first two stories remain years away from clinical implementation, the next report has to do with a technology that is already revolutionizing cancer therapy today. The technology I'm referring to is whole exome sequencing, basically a genetic approach in which researchers produce DNA readouts of all the genes in the genome that make proteins of some kind. In a technical report in the June issue of Nature Medicine, a team led by Eliezer Van Allen and Nikhil Wagle from the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and the Broad Institute describe how whole exome sequencing can be used to tailor drug treatment for people with cancer. To discuss the work, I sat down with the co-first authors at the Broad Institute in the Kendall Square area of Cambridge, Massachusetts. Nick Wagle first laid out his vision for exome sequencing in cancer care. The vision that we've all been going after is to try and develop ways in the clinic to be able to look at someone's tumor, figure out all of the relevant genomic alterations that that tumor may have, and then use that information to make clinical decisions. And to do this in a way that an oncologist who's treating patients every day can do this simply without having to know everything about sequencing and how to do all the technical aspects of all of this. And so that's the vision for, for this project. So the idea here is to basically just sequence all the protein-coding genes in a tumor and, 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 and see what you got. Is that right, Ellie? Yeah, that's, that's correct. I think the, where, where we've gone thus far in clinical oncology is we've already moved, already made quite a few advances where I'm thinking back to when I started my oncology fellowship in 2010 and we were doing hotspot profiling of very selected mutations in a very small set of genes and that was, that was the cutting edge. And we've moved on from there to there's multiple institutions doing gene panels, testing all the protein coding regions in a subset of genes, let's say 300 or so genes. Um, our thought is, is that for, for multiple reasons, it'd be potentially very transformative to say, if we can do this for a few hundred genes, perhaps if we could do this in a way that's clinically effective for all 20,000 genes, we may be able to learn a lot of new things about how to take care of that individual patient and then also an aggregate link all of that data to what happens to these patients moving forward to improve over time on how we do uh, all of clinical oncology. So in this paper now, you demonstrate the potential of this exome sequencing approach, and you first validate it using a retrospective analysis. But to me, the most interesting part is actually the prospective part, where you looked uh, at 16 patients. Can you tell me who these people were and, and what the analysis showed? These 16 patients were some of our early research subjects, patients who had advanced cancer where they often had gone through the standard of care and they were really left um, looking for a novel therapeutic option, be that a clinical trial or a drug that they might not have otherwise have considered. And so in the paper, when we, when we did these first 16 patients, we were interested to see that in 15 of the 16 patients, when we did whole exome sequencing and when we ran them through the algorithms that we describe in the paper, that we found something that was potentially clinically relevant in 15 of the 16 patients. And these weren't patients who were in clinical trials, but if we were doing this in the setting of a clinical trial, that may actually have that led the clinician to make a decision. And in fact, we describe one case in the paper where a clinician did make a decision based on these uh, exome results, and it actually had a significant impact on that patient's care. This is a patient with lung cancer who was not really doing very well on the drugs that that person was receiving, and then the mutational profile revealed a, a new direction of therapy? Correct. And what was 
especially remarkable about that case was that the patient had had clinical testing that included, you know, sort of the standard of care testing for some of the genes um, that we know very well are important in lung cancer, and that testing was, was negative. Um, and as it turned out, it was with the whole exome data that we were able to reveal that he actually had a, a very rare mutation in one of those genes, in a gene called KRAS. And even though that's an, a much more rare mutation in that gene, it's, it is known to be to have the same kind of an effect as the more common KRAS mutations. And linking that to some of the other um, emerging scientific data that have been coming out relating that gene to a specific drug that was in clinical trials, we were able to put the two together and get the patient on a clinical trial based off of his genomic profile. As someone who's never worked with tumor tissues, I was intrigued that right in the title of your paper, you talk about the fact that that you're doing this exome sequencing from formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tumor samples. Is there something unique about this kind of archival samples that makes it harder to do DNA analyses than, than a fresh tumor biopsy that people outside the cancer community might not appreciate? Yeah, it is. So formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded tissues, uh, or FFP tissues, are how biopsies, in particular tumor biopsies, are stored in the path lab. And for a long time in the genomics community, it was thought that you couldn't do good sequencing using these tissues. And so genomics using blood samples or frozen samples uh, were, were standard. But up until several years ago, FFP was not a tissue that you could use. And we, in, a, in our prior paper, showed that you could do targeted sequencing from FFP samples that was published several, several years ago. And now doing targeted sequencing from FFP has become more and more routine at a lot of centers. Uh, but to date, no one has really demonstrated a production-level routine whole exome sequencing from FFP because it's not easy. It's challenging. And so the fact that we can now do whole exome sequencing from tissues that we get out of a clinical pathology lab is what makes this different than all the whole exome sequencing that's been done so far. So it takes it out of the research context and into the possibility of cancer centers around the world. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to say it. And, and to, just to make it clear, if you can't sequence from FFP tissue, your sequencing is really limited to those people who are being biopsied under research protocols for the p purpose of sequencing, right? So that's a very, very small sliver of the population. If you say we, we can do sequencing out of FFP tissue, all of a sudden we can study anyone. We can study anyone who has an interesting uh, phenotype, an interesting response to, to medications, an interesting um, pattern of resistance, or someone like the patients in this paper who are just looking for the next therapy or the next clinical trial to enroll on, we can now do that from their routinely obtained tissues. Nikhil Wagle and Eliezer Van Allen. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast, but there's plenty more to be found in the June issue of the journal, including an interview with Jeffrey Ling, head of the new Biological Technologies Office at DARPA, the U.S. military's advanced research lab. You can find links to that and everything you heard about on the program by visiting nature.com slash naturemedicine. We're also on Twitter and Facebook, and we always appreciate your feedback. One piece of feedback comes from Saul Valeda, author of The Young Blood Paper, who speaks highly of the review process at the journal. It was so fair. That, that, I've been telling everybody this. I'm like, you guys should submit to Nature Medicine. I'm like, I love it. <laughs> to tell us what you think about Nature Medicine the journal, the podcast, whatever, please drop us a line at medicine at us.nature.com. Until next time, I'm Ailey Dalgan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>